there's just a lot of unknowns. I don't think you can handicap who the game one starter is. If you assume they make the playoffs, it's anybody's guess who starts game one for them. And going back to the Mets, I mean, you think about who did start game one. Well, he's going to be the Mets' probably number four starter, Jose Quintana. That was their game one starter last year. So that's what you're going up against at the top of the food chain in terms of other starting rotations. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the best podcast in baseball, brought to you by Closet by Design of St. Louis. I'm St. Louis Post-Dispatch baseball writer Derek Gould, joined this week by MLB Network senior researcher Keith Costas. We're here along South Grand having a slice, having coffee. Basically, I've tried to transport New York here <laughs> to my little area of Tower Grove in St. Louis. How have I done so far? Walkable, good coffee, good pizza, good conversation. It feels just like the epicenter of culture to me. <laughs> welcome to town for the holidays. Happy to have you back here. The St. Louis kid get to be around baseball. This is not a coincidence at all, right? The, growing up here is that sort of what fueled an interest in baseball that has now become like a, a, a career. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, I grew up around it with my dad working in the industry and traveling everywhere with him, and schedule always kind of worked out. You know, baseball was obviously a big thing for him, but also basketball. And with school as a kid, you know, basketball season would always be heating up right when school was letting out. So. There'd be a little six-year-old kid tagging along <laughs> to all the meetings and the practices and in the airports and whatnot, but specifically the baseball in St. Louis. Yeah, my mom's whole side of the family's here, and <clears throat> the fandom for baseball and the passion for baseball was just as much about growing up in a house with a mom who her first crush was Tim McCarver and <laughs> you know, grew up with the Cardinals and my uncle's loving the Cardinals and my grandparents loving the Cardinals. So, yeah, St. Louis is certainly a huge part of what inspired my baseball fandom where was your first game where was your first big league game you know what it's that's a good question it's been such a part of my life that it's hard for me to remember first because it's just been something i grew up around but i would say my first memory of a game not necessarily my first game is actually in minnesota going up to see Kirby Puckett, who my dad had a close relationship with, and I have a little connection with, too. My my second middle name is Kirby, so we had a family connection there. So I think going up to see Kirby when I was probably four or five is one of my first real clear memories of being at a stadium. So like the cliche story of the kid walking into the ballpark for the first time and seeing grass as green as he or she has never seen, that's not your story because you saw AstroTurf. Right? Am I, did, I, did I just ruin the cliche? Correct. Metrodome, early Bush before uh, before those renovations with the carpet. So yeah, I didn't I didn't have that experience. Certainly heard about my dad having that experience at Yankee Stadium, and I think pro- kind of inherited that from him. Almost that type of passion and that that experience with falling in love with the game. While it wasn't exactly how things went for me, because I just had a different set of circumstances, it's certainly something that I. You know, it, it's embedded into my baseball fandom, having been passed down from my dad. The first baseball game I saw, I, I had my driver's license already because there wasn't Major League right. Baseball anywhere nearby. But there was a there was a really beautiful ballpark driving a day's drive away in Kansas City. So I, my first game was at Kauffman um, when it was Royal Stadium, and it was amazing, green grass, all that stuff. However, like. I wanted to ask you, you had a great segue there about like seeing Yankee Stadium for the first time, because I would imagine you heard about it in stories before going to see it in person. And I made sure that my son, he may never remember it. 
but we have photos. And actually, I think he kind of does remember it a little bit because he dumped my phone in lemonade. So a very memorable experience for him as a little kid to ruin dad's phone. Um, but I made sure that he got to the old place so he could say, like, I always went there as opposed to the new place. What was your first trip like seeing that place that you'd heard stories about? I'm sure from the moment you could remember hearing stories. Yeah, well, I'll flip it. My first time to Yankee Stadium, I was probably... Well, at least that I remember, I was probably seven or eight years old, but I remember more as my last trip to Yankee Stadium because my dad actually did some interviews after that. I guess 08 was the last year Yankee mm -hmm. Stadium, is that right? Yeah. Um, he did some interviews after that season ended that were that took place on the field. So the last game at Yankee Stadium had already been wow. played, and I got to kind of tag along with my dad and watch him do some of these interviews. And <clears throat> it's a pretty memorable experience kind of walking around the warning track and stuff with my dad in an empty stadium. It was probably mid to late November and kind of thinking about everything that had happened there and all his experiences there, both professionally and personally. I mean, you talk about that first time walking in. He's told the story. Some people have probably heard him say it before, but going with his dad the first time he went and being maybe five or six and crying when mm -hmm. they walked out because he thought that the players were buried under the monuments. He oh. thought he was standing on... Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and Joe, I guess DiMaggio is still with us, but he thought he was standing on their grave sites. So to kind of have that in the background of my understanding of the game, in particular Yankee Stadium, and then to be standing there on the field all these years later as they were closing the door on it, and my dad being in a position to kind of, you know, contextualize some of these stories for a broader audience, knowing that he started back there as a kid in tears, thinking that he was in a cemetery and not a baseball stadium. It was a pretty cool way to put a bow on it. They took us out there when the Cardinals visited New Yankee Stadium for the first time. They walked us out there to see the the current Monument Park, and um, and they did. We walked on the track. I very rarely crossed the white lines. Like I could go a whole season and not cross the white lines until the World Series when we have to to right. do the interviews. Um, and and I so we walked on the warning track and we went out there and I said, can I stop and take a photo real quick? And so I took one of those like panoramic photos um, from center field and I sent it to my dad and I said, look, dad, I finally made it center field for the Yankees, just like you always dreamed. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. So let's stop with the nostalgia, though. We could do this all day and talk about the future. Uh, Cardinals, what do you make of what they're fresh off of signing Wilson Contreras? This is something you guys covered a lot at MLB Network on the hot stove show that you appear on. Um, did you always see it as a fit? And as that week kind of built toward that being the signing, what was your thoughts? Yeah, I did always think it was going to be a fit, just knowing how the Cardinals operate. And I'm not making a positive or a negative comment on that, but just kind of knowing what they've done in the past, specifically that last trade deadline, them being resistant to move some of their better prospects for a future Hall of Famer in Juan Soto. Now, obviously, the ask for a guy like Sean Murphy wasn't going to be the same, but we know that the Cardinals value their draft and develop. And when you look at, there's not a huge volume of impact catchers out there. And when you think about what the contract is Contreras signed relative to other top players at different positions, it's a pretty palatable deal to be able to not move some of your other assets and plug that hole with an external option. So, yeah, I always felt like Contreras was a logical fit, especially when some of the reporting from you and others came out on just what that ask was going to be for Murphy and how many other catch, uh, teams, specifically contenders in the National League, were involved in that catcher market. I mean, you look around the National yeah. League, that's one of the more interesting storylines to me from the Cardinals' perspective is all of these contenders in the National League either have great catchers already, like Real Muto or Will Smith with the Dodgers, or they 
addressed or tinkered with their catching situation in some way in the offseason. So I think the Cardinals did well to kind of strike first before that carousel went into full motion. If you take away all the trappings of what it takes to get a guy, which of the catchers did you think was the best fit for the Cardinals? Take away the cost of it, dollars, prospects, and just say, okay, this is the guy that would have been the best fit in life after Yadier Molina. Well, I think it's a two-part question when I think about if you were asking this question five years ago, I think you might have a different answer than with the way things are constructed now because you think about Contreras as bad. It's not like you play him at DH to get a day off. If he was just a DH, he'd probably be one of the five or six best DHs in the game. So you can play him there and not be losing something. You can He can be an asset as just a bat. So the fact that they have that outlet as he ages, I think makes him an excellent fit. But removing that out of it and just thinking short term, it's hard to gauge some of this these things with catchers if you're not truly watching them every single day. But if you trust the numbers and you trust the rep- reputation, I think Murphy was maybe a slightly better fit just because he has a maybe a little more well-rounded game <clears throat> on both sides of the ball. But I-, I think that the defensive issues that people talk about with Contreras are maybe a little over-exaggerated. I think he's going to be a very nice fit all around for the Cardinals. The, the, I talked to Mike Farron of MLB Radio Network a while back, and he was talking about how the, this perception of the Cardinals is that they spend, that they do enough, but they don't take that one next step that turns them from a division-like contender to like a, a headliner in the National League. It, it, do you get that same feel? Is that kind of the, the perception, too, from, from the seat you have? They're kind of looking over all the teams. I think that's a fair description of how they actually operate in the market and what dollars they're willing to extend and what pools they're willing to swim in. But at the same time, it's not like they just nip and tuck to make trades. They traded for two guys that were legit MVP contenders. So I understand where that perception comes from. I don't even necessarily disagree with it. Mike does an awesome job. He has a handle on the whole league as well as anybody. But when they've had the returns, even with the misses, with you know whether it's Alcantara or you know Rosarena to a lesser extent. They've had two fairly significant hits by trading for future <laughs> Hall of Fame players. So, do they do it in a different way than the Yankees or the Dodgers? Obviously, they do, but I think you have to give them credit where credit's due. They brought in two aircraft carriers on the corners <laughs> through trade, so it's not exactly like they skimped on getting those high-end players. I like that for aircraft carriers. That's pretty good. That's Dan O'Dowd-Barrow. He's, uh, he started using that when he came to the network, and I've noticed it's kind of infiltrated a lot of people's vernacular, myself included. So the aircraft aircraft carrier is the true franchise player. is uh, really kind good. of a little MLBN lingo. One of those aircraft carriers, like Dan O'Dowd, came from Colorado. So yeah, that works exactly. out. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Are the Rockies covering Dan, part of Dan O'Dowd's salary at MLB Network? Is that how that works? <laughs> I believe those uh, answers are above my pay grade. What do you make of what's happening in the National League? I mean, you got these teams that were good and are now spending great. And obviously the marketplace is really good. The the Just the economy of the game is it's on jet fuel, to borrow another phrase. I mean, just coming out of the pandemic, fans in the stands, new TV deals really kicking up. All that stuff is coming back in, and the money is funneling and labor piece. So we're in this honeymoon period for Major League Baseball. At the same, So all of that's happening. It's the National League that is just going, just doing all the spending. What do you make of kind of what the what the top teams have done? They've, they've they were good, and now they're spending crazy. Yeah, I think it's super exciting, and I think it's actually it's a nice thing that the Phillies made the run that they did to me because 
you know, not throwing shade at them, using their own owner's words from a few years ago that they're going to spend some money and perhaps some stupid money, (laughs) as he put it. It was nice to see a team that just got really, really aggressive. They made some moves that weren't perfect. We know that, you know, Kyle Schwarber and Nick Castellanos aren't going to be confused with Roberto Clemente as corner outfielders defensively, but they decided we're going to throw a lot of money at this. We're going to have six, seven guys that hit one through six in our lineup every single night and see how it goes. And to see success with that, while you still have other teams like the Dodgers that are a blend of obviously the deep pockets and kind of that raised model of development. You've got the Mets that are obviously the new kids on the block. The Braves have as sustainable of a machine going right now, I think, as anybody in the National League. And obviously the Cardinals are a team that are going to be in contention just about every year. You've got a pretty healthy blend of teams that are willing to be aggressive within whatever their kind of organizational MO is of how they go about their business. And you got a nice mix of teams in all different divisions with different styles and different kind of roster constructions that are that all have reason to believe going into next year that they can come out on top. And it's a fu- it's a fun mix to me. Do you, do you worry that the the big spenders are pulling away at all? Do you get that sense that that it's going to start. I know that like spending has never yielded championships, sure. but with the new playoff structure, you could argue that spending has definitely yielded playoff berths. Yes. Um, do you worry that they're kind of pulling away and, and separating themselves in a way that maybe is going to be most acute in the NL Central? I think it's too early to tell. I mean, we're so in the infancy of this new format, and whether you're talking the CBA or you're talking the playoff format, we're going to have to see in five or six mm-hmm. years how some of these th- these massive deals and these rosters that are laid out the way they are now, how they how they hold up over time, and can other teams kind of fill that void? You know, it'll be interesting to see what a team like the Marlins that have basically a fresh, completely fresh start, and obviously there's not a great history there with that specific example, but can teams zig while these other teams are zagging, and what is, I don't think it was always natural that this was going to kind of be, I think, the first move by the league as a whole with this expanded playoff. The teams, like you're saying, we're going to spend just to get in the dance and then see where the cards fall. That was always going to be logical. But how the other half of the league or so responds to that is going to be very interesting going forward. Who do you think's improved the most with their free agent action? Or was able to make... I mean, because obviously the Yankees had the most at risk, I guess. If a Yankees of 2023 without Aaron Judge is a significantly different Yankees team. Right. Um, who, who Do you think a, a team radically changed themselves in free agency? I don't know about radically changed, but I think you have to be excited about just the Mets just doubling down. And before the ink was barely dry with DeGrom to Texas and they slide right in and fill that void with Verlander, they bring back Brandon Nimmo on a on a big contract who was their own guy. You know, basically every hole that they had or need that they had, they addressed swiftly. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's pretty exciting to have not just the Yankees but also the Mets in New York kind of setting that pace for the rest of the league. And the Phillies with Trey Turner. I mean how oh, yeah. I mean it, that's a team that already won the NL pennant. You had a great has a great player in Bryce Harper and added sneaky maybe the best free agent available? I, I would have called him the best free agent available from an on-field perspective, but certainly from a fan's perspective. If you've already got a lineup like the Phillies have that have all that thump to inject a guy with that style of play and Trey Turner, that's going to be a very, very fun team to watch. But I agree with you. I mean, we talked about this a little bit during the winter meetings, but you look at over the last three years in the National League, guys with the most total bases, he's at the top of the list ahead of a couple 225-pound MVP first baseman and Paul Goldschmidt and Freddie Freeman. So all of a sudden, you've got the fastest guy in the league 
who granted there's a lot of singles in there too, but that one total base counts. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's producing offensively where you can hit him in the middle of the lineup, you can hit him at the top of the lineup. I would agree with your assessment that he was the best free agent on the market. I think every so often that we ought to redo total bases to include to include steals. Oh yeah, because oh, yeah. isn't that a single that turns into a double? I've made that uh, exact argument about Tommy Edmond, who maybe doesn't have as many fans outside of St. Louis as he does inside, especially when people start looking at, you know, if he's not hitting for average, his on base percentage isn't going to be there. He's not a guy that draws a ton of walks, but you think about all those singles and walks that turn into doubles you've got a different looking slugging percentage if you were calculating total bases that way. So yeah, I think that's that's certainly something that should be looked at. That was something that I fiddled around with oh gosh, years ago and I wish I could remember who it might have been like Adam Eaton or somebody along those lines who yeah. had like this like kind of all around great year and I was trying to figure out the uh and Jimmy Rollins would have fit into this uh, on the fits that bill. All these, yeah, and and Acuna was too. Like this notion of like, where do they fit in the MVP conversation? Well, their slugging isn't as high, and I was like, well, what if I add the ninety feet they stole, right. and then add their ninety feet they stole plus the times caught stealing, as if they were at bats, and recalculated their slugging percentage just based on the ninety feet they earned, like, and then then the ninety feet they cost a team. So outs would be a negative ninety feet, and the, the doubles. 290 you know like that it, it, it was like an interesting way to look at for me i was like oh wow this is a, a cool way to look at speed that's the name of the game moving those 90 feet as often as you can and hopefully four at a time just to score runs and what the accounting of the game was set up however many years ago is maybe sometimes doesn't line up exactly with the logic and i agree with everything you're saying about how you look at those type of players the way i always phrase it is okay if you're not going to be a guy that gets on base a ton or you're you know take whatever three to four stats people like to look at at a surface level that are that are probably the most important stats on base percentage whatever calculation of war you prefer that's all good and fine it's all very important it's going to tell a huge percentage of the story but how many of those other buckets do you fill mm-hmm. and guys like Tommy Edmond and Ozzy Albies those t- their other secondary buckets are overflowing now it's hard to project going forward but it's certainly speaks to why maybe the stats don't always tell or match the eye test in terms of how valuable those types of players are. So who's the leadoff hitter for the Phillies? It's it's not Schwarber anymore, right? It's got to be Trey Turner. They're not going to go with Schwarber. He's just going to be the, the monster bat in number two, right? I would I would think so, but they're one that you've... We've had a couple powwows about that at MLB Network because you could come up with five or six different lineup iterations for, for a lot of these teams, but the Phillies certainly one of them. The Padres come to mind with... You know, there are dozen shortstops and who's going to play where and who's going to hit where. But, yeah, you would think, especially, you know, I mentioned it earlier with the Phillies rolling out that kind of here's our one through six, we're not touching it, this is our team, this is what we've got, I would think Trey Turner finds his way to the top of the lineup there. Does it, when you look at what Wilson Contreras got on the open marketplace from the Cardinals, five years, 87 and a half, chance for um, earning 105 over six, and you compare that to some of the other Deals. Does it look like maybe a, a, a value play in a marketplace when everything else is kind of just skyrocketing? I mean, yeah, I take even take the players or the specifics out of it. When you just look at that's the price tag to play at the top of the catcher market. I mean, I think if, you know, if Real Muto had hit free agency this year, I think he that would have been a, probably a different number for that type of player as the top catcher. Obviously, the player dictates the amount of money, but... Yeah, when you look at five for 87 and a half being kind of the benchmark for a catcher in this offseason and then look at what some of these shortstops got or the slugging outfielders got, 
I think it makes a ton of sense, like we were talking about earlier, to go ahead and bite that bullet, if you want to phrase it that way, and just pay the money for the catcher because relative to those other positions, and there are not as many good catchers as there are good you know, slugging outfielders, mm-hmm. it's, it seems to me a very good value. So is that the fact? Is that the game continuing to undervalue catchers? Maybe is the price point off on catchers? I think there's just such a hesitancy to contribute huge dollars to such a physically demanding position. Fascinating, yeah, yeah. I mean, that to me is the biggest thing when you talk about catchers. Is who knows how they're going to age? Who knows if they still? You know, you're a catcher and you all of a sudden come up with a knee problem that might change the calculus forever for you. You might never be able to get down there for 120 games a year again. So, yeah, it's just the nature of the position to me is really what suppresses that market and probably always will to a certain extent. We saw massive deals to Trey Turner to go to Philadelphia, tremendous deal for Carlos Correa to go to uh, in San Francisco. San Diego got Xander Bogarts but made a play for Trey Turner. Denied. <laughs> and they were going to do something. Winter gonna... meetings in their town, they weren't going to leave there without any any action. No, they were throwing around like $400 million. I mean, just crazy. You're right. They they were going to grab the headlines. And good for them. You know, I mean, they're playing above yeah. their market in a lot of ways. Like, I, you know, you could look at the size markets and you see like San Diego and Pittsburgh nearby each other. And it's like, they're not even in the same galaxy when it comes to how they run their ball, their ball teams. And they both have really beautiful ballparks. It's just such a fascinating. I was thinking when you said that too, two great places to watch a game and places that when things are going right, those are those are some good environments. Not good Absolutely. environment, great some great environments. As good as it gets, really. Absolutely. So, knowing where the shortstops went, how high would have the price tag on Nolan Arenado gone if he had opted out? Yeah, I mean, I think just reading the tea leaves, I was always expecting him to stay in St. Louis, but in a vacuum, I don't really know what the argument was for him to not opt out and test this market other than he just loved the fit and that he didn't see landing in another spot that was going to be make him as happy and as be, be as good of a fit. And I think that them going out and getting Contreras and doing what they said they would do and saying they'd always feel the competitive team around him and, you know, just his first go-around, these first couple years with the team, being in the playoffs, and then I don't think you can overstate what it probably meant to some of these guys to see a living legend like Pujols and Molina and to a lesser extent Wainwright to see what things will look like for a true Cardinal when you're 50, 60, 70 years old. If you're going to wear one of those red jackets, you know, is having one of those red jackets and 50 million less dollars in your bank account, but you still never have to worry about money for the rest of your life. Yeah. You know, it's easy to see how those things might factor in. Would he have been the king of free agency? Would I, I was walking around the San Diego winter meetings wondering, like, what my world would have been like if I, every – I mean, it would have been 24 hours chasing Arenado. It would have been like 2011 all over again when we're in Dallas and trying to pop in on different teams, finding out are they really making a play. Oh, the Marlins brought Albert Pujols in for a visit to their new ballpark. What was that like? Oh, wait, there's some team that is out there with a major offer. Who is that? Oh, it's the Angels. Are the Cubs going to get involved? I mean, it, it would be that kind of – it was like it would be like 2011 all over again, right, if yeah. he had opted out. Yeah, especially when you think of the other parallel with Albert eventually going to – a big spending Southern California team, <laughs> you would have to think if Arnado had opted out, you know, the big question would be, is anybody going to be able to throw around the clout financially that the Dodgers are? Because that would have been obviously the team that everyone would have connected the dots to him going back home, you know, 
long time Justin Turner mainstay on the corner might finally be the end of the road for him we'll see where he ends up signing but you know he's been connected to some teams that aren't necessarily contenders maybe he ends up going back there on a very team friendly deal who knows how that plays out but yeah that would have been uh, I don't think he would have been getting much sleep in San Diego if that had been the case he uh, he had a great thing on on your all's program for the MVP awards on MLB Network where he may have given like one of the like most direct answers about why he didn't opt out. He said the grass isn't always greener. Yep. And I thought that was a really fascinating thing. Like he knows a circumstance that he wanted to get away from. Mm-hmm. He knows a circumstance that he has and that he was like, well, I mean, I, I prefer that to the unknown because I have something to compare it against. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think he just experienced his first couple seasons here and was very happy. And I understand why some some fans of the Cardinals might want them to extend themselves and be there might they might welcome a little more volatility mm-hmm. to chase that ceiling. Mm-hmm. But after being in the situation that he was in that you alluded to in Colorado, knowing that there's a floor of, hey, you're gonna be in contention virtually every single you're not gonna play a meaningless game here. You might go into the playoffs not expected to advance or not be a World Series favorite, but you're gonna be in the mix every single year. Given what his experiences were, I think it was just a matter of comfort and not risking it. So what is the next move that makes the Cardinals better from from your perspective? If if they're, the market is what it is now, starters have moved on, yeah. Carl Stradon is in the Bronx. Um, you know, the best of the best starters are really signed now. You're, you're kind of into the next second tier, um, all the short stops. But Dansby Swanson is signed at the time of us recording that. We could check our phones to make sure that still has an app. Um, what, what is the next kind of move that you think puts the Cardinals astride closer towards a National League pennant? I would have thought the most impactful move that they could have potentially made would have been to get in the mix for one of those front-end start. A guy... I won't necessarily say a front-end starter, but a guy that you know, if you're in a playoff series, he's starting a game. A pitcher that fits that bill. You, there's no question about if he's healthy and he's right, this is one of our three best starters. A guy that fit that bill. I was in, intrigued by, we talked about the Mets, but you know, Verlander's going to get the headlines, bringing back Nimmo's going to get the headlines. Going out and getting kind of the quintessential kind of number two, number three starter on the market in Kodai Asenga mm-hmm. to kind of fill that Chris Bassett role, who, by the way, Bassett, I thought would have been a guy that would have been pretty intriguing for the Cardinals, ended up in Toronto. But that type of pitcher, you know, obviously in an ideal world, anybody would want a Justin Verlander, a, a true ace. But somebody that you know is going to start a playoff series is what I would have really loved to have seen them do. How many of those starters that were available fit that description. And, and does Nathan Evaldi still fit that description? There weren't, there weren't a ton. I'm not sure Evaldi fits that specific description, but I still think he'd be the type of guy that could help them lengthen that rotation a little bit, give them some insurance. Because they've got, you know, you hear a lot of people talk about the depth of their rotation. I actually think they have good pieces. I mean, no matter how it shakes out, their fifth starter is going to be better than virtually all. Fifth, most fifth starters. I mean, they're going to have five starters that are that are solid. But just as like a one one point of uh, one data point, we do the top ten shows every year in the offseason. It's always a fun. If you're a baseball fan, you know that's what sports is about. It's you can watch these games and analyze them. But at the end of the day, people like saying, "Is my guy better? Is your guy better?" Making a list. You know, people love that stuff. And when we start with our pools of players that we pick from, we started just by chance. It's not because of the number of teams or anything. There's 32 pitchers in our starting pitcher pool eventually we'll get down to 10 that make the list on the show 
there wasn't a Cardinal in the pool of 32. Right. That's not a great recipe when you go into a playoff series. It doesn't mean you can't win a playoff series. It doesn't mean you can't advance. It doesn't mean you can't get hot at the right time. But if you're looking around and you're saying, okay, we're putting all the pitchers in the pool and we're just going to draft this like a fantasy draft for all the teams. And if you go chalk, there's not somebody on your roster that would necessarily be an opening day starter. That's not a that's not a great sign for what you have at the top of the rotation. Now, obviously, they have guys with track records and the capabilities. We've seen Wainwright be very effective in recent seasons. If Flaherty can get back to what Flaherty was, obviously, he's one of those. I think mean, the last time that Flaherty was Flaherty, I had him at like seven mm-hmm. on that top ten. Yeah, I think he made the top ten. Yeah, he yeah. was he was a dude. Obviously, yeah. when Flaherty's going well, he's as good as just about anybody. But there's just a lot of unknowns and who's going to be. You know, I don't think you can handicap who the game one starter is. If you assume they make the playoffs, it's anybody's guess who starts game one for them. And going back to the Mets, I mean, you think about who did start game one. Well, he's going to be the Mets' probably number four starter, Jose Quintana. That was their game one starter last right. year. So that's what you're going up against at the top of the food chain in terms of other starting rotations. That's a great point. That was part of why I thought like Verlander would be a good fit, an intriguing fit for the Cardinals. Especially at, the, at that price point. Right. I mean, it's everything, commitment. That, everything that they – and not, it's not about the Cardinals. It's everything the teams are afraid of, those long-term commitments. I mean, on a two-year contract, there's really no – price you could throw out for Justin Verlander that would make me scoff. You said two years, $100 million for Justin Verlander. It's fine. That's mm-hmm. probably worth it for, right. the, for the certainty. Yeah, you're right about that. The, the Cardinals are in a spot where they have the depth of a rotation to contend during a season, and they have a rotation right now where, gosh, something better go right where yeah. in the postseason. And, and, that's, and so the best thing that they can do is to finish first or second in the National League with that depth of rotation so that they'd avoid the Nola-Wheeler combo in the first round and at least get into a, there see South Grand soundtrack um, you get the uh, so you get the at least the chance to go into a longer series where maybe some depth might help yeah and you could be a little bit more creative with your pitching plan get to set things up but yeah that's the number one thing for the cardinals to me is i think that they have enough pieces in the rotation i think the depth issue is a little overblown and just the the top end is the bigger concern for me how 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 much content just comes from at the mlb network this time of year there aren't games to be played right. and yet you guys aren't hurting for content right because the hot stove just burns 24/7 um do you find that fascinating watching that with other sports that do have kind of lulls in their free agent period, that do have kind of lulls in their schedule? Whereas baseball, you've you got a great seat for this. You're never, you don't ever go to work and wonder, well, what are we going to talk about today? There's usually something fresh or something that you could, you know, I mean, there's like, there's, there's conversation there immediately. Yeah, well, I think that's the great part about baseball is even if you're cheering for a team that isn't a contender, or even if you're going to look in the mirror and say, hey, this team probably isn't doing anything for the next three or four years, there's always something to follow day-to-day with baseball. Mm-hmm. You're developing the the next wave of guys. You're seeing what trade ships you have that you can spin forward. The nature of all 30 fan bases locally is that it's an intense day-to-day thing. And when you have that kind of luxury at MLB Network to cover the game on that level like we do, I mean, like we say, all, all 30 teams, mm-hmm. you know, people, you know how Cardinals fans are. They could sit here all day and put lineups together and spend, <laughs> yeah. it's almost more passionate sometimes in the off season than during the season, just because there's so much room for speculation. And 
and dreaming up the best case scenarios for the next season that lies ahead. When you've got all 30 teams to do that with, there's always something interesting with all these teams. And I just think the volume of baseball, there's so many games and there's, you know, it's a little different now with the way the minor leagues have been restructured, but multiple levels of players and multiple layers to be tracking and monitoring and spinning forward that you're never going to run out of things to talk to talk about in baseball. Whereas in some other sports, I mean, the NFL, you can look at half a dozen teams, maybe more every year, and say this team just has absolutely no chance. And not only do they have any chance, none of these players are going to be on the roster in two years. It's going to be yeah. completely turned over. There's always going to be a thread in baseball for the most part of you know connective tissue from one team to the next. And I think that that kind of day-to-day everyday nature of it just lends itself to never having a lull, like you said. Yeah, one of the things that happens, and you guys do a great job of balancing this, especially on Hot Stove, the, the show that you appear on is this, okay, this is what is happening, and you have the repertorial and the reporters on there, and you bring interviews on and talk about, okay, this is what is happening. And then you guys spend time like speculating about what could happen. How, how do you walk that line of entertainment speculation and also – then bring in like the clarity of like, well, maybe that isn't that reality for that team, or this is where that team is going. How do you balance that? Because part of being there for fans is also providing them a chance to dream a little bit about what's possible, right? They, you don't you don't have to have the, the Derek Gould on Twitter walk in and go, well, actually, uh, wet blanket, Eeyore, that's not going to happen. Right. I think if you set up the appropriate kind of bumpers and boundaries mm-hmm. for the fans, they're smart enough to figure it out, and they'll appreciate and understand what speculation kind of happens between between those lines. And if you want to, you know, take your shots and maybe veer on <laughs> sometimes sometimes some things that aren't entirely feasible, I think they appreciate that too. But as long as you set up, hey, this is what we know to be true, mm-hmm. and then you lay out things that are possible within that context, I think that's all fair game. And that's a lot of the work that goes on, honestly, behind the scenes at LV Network is just making sure that you're on top of all of the teams and being as current as you possibly can. Obviously, when you're trying to cover all 30 teams, not everyone's going to have the expertise and the day-to-day insight that somebody like you would that's covering the Cardinals, but you do your best to keep on top of all of that stuff and set up those kind of bumpers that I was talking about. Like just for example, just earlier this morning, I got an email from a colleague to a big list of people and said, hey, just want to make sure we're on the same page about the Padres. Here's some of the reporting that they've, that's been out there from their beat guys about, you know, they've got all these shortstops. They're going to play Kim at second, probably. Cronenworth's going to move over to first. He'll occasionally play second. They'll probably play Tatis in the outfield. Soto could move to left, which would free up right. Just, you know, keeping all of these things in mind mm-hmm. and speculating from a place that at least starts with the appropriate facts and context and taking it from there. As long as you go out of your way to set that up. And I think we try and we try and do a very deliberate job of that. You talk about hot stove in particular, mm-hmm. we're certainly going to have some fun segments, you know, the free agent slot machine or the <laughs> yeah. supermarket or wherever, where you're ultimately just picking somewhat blindly where a player might fit. But we're going to try and start those segments always with that context that I was talking about. And from there, you know, that's just being a fan. We're all fans of the game at MLB Network too. And if there's nothing, if there's nothing newsworthy going on, that's what sports is in the off season. Is kind of speculating, kicking around what what might be a fit, what might not be a fit, what storylines are real, what's just kind of narrative BS, and <laughs> sifting your way through that that off season. What uh, what were I mean? I, I kind of maybe know what one of the answers will be. What were some of the favorite stories that you saw? You know, keeping track of all thirty teams, where 
coming towards the end of 2022, so we'll hear a lot of year on the list. They're going to do on MLB Network some of the great games. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the top tens that will happen and everything like that. So it seems natural. What were, what were a couple of the stories that really stood out to you as kind of the best of 2022? Well, hanging fruit, sitting here on, down South Grand with you talking Cardinals, but I really do think that what happened with Albert was just unbelievable is a word that gets overused a lot. That was truly unbelievable what he did. I don't think if you pulled whatever cross-section of people in St. Louis, outside of St. Louis, just people around the game, the idea that he would not just get to 700, but do it as one of the most effective offensive players, given what he was asked to do, mm-hmm. it was nowhere within the realm of possibility for me. And to see him do it, and to see his teammates certainly, and the fans certainly, but really the whole league. I, you know, I heard some talk that it wasn't getting enough coverage nationally. I I, I, I disagreed with more, that yeah. completely. Maybe it wasn't at the volume that some people would like, but I think if you watch the way opposing fans react, opposing players reacted and took it all in, it felt like a very, very big deal to me as it was happening. It couldn't have been more enjoyable to watch from afar. I mean, people stopped to watch as it bats. You could be in a clubhouse and the Cardinal game would be on and everything would stop to watch Albert Pujols taking at bat. And this was not – you guys did live cut-ins sometimes yeah. of some of his at-bats. And Aaron Judge's too. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, they, they there was – obviously here locally it was a conversation. Like, did you see how far he hit that one? Did you see when he hit that one? Oh, my gosh, what a moment. Like, yeah. did you see his grin? Has he ever smiled like that? I mean, it was a constant conversation. Coffee houses like we're at now. I mean, there were some moments where um – well, my colleague Mark DeRosa tells a great story about his brief time with with the Cardinals. And there was a game in Cincinnati. I wish I had the particulars because we could go back and find it. But there was a game in Cincinnati, and it was a bases-loaded situation. Or maybe there was – I guess there must have been two on, and Albert was on deck. And whoever was hitting in front of him got to 3-0 or 3-1 or whatever it was. And guys in the dugout started kind of like gathering their things almost. And Dero was looking around saying, what's going on here? Like, why is there such a calm or like – what, this should be a very tense moment in the game, but he realized that like Albert was coming up with the ba- like he was going to end the game. There really wasn't any question when he was the peak <laughs> of his powers amazing, that yeah. you know like there was a situation and the overwhelming odds were that he was going to deliver. I'm not going to say that 40 something year old Albert Pujols this past year was what peak Albert Pujols was, but there was more than one or two moments where those live look-ins happened and it felt like okay something's going to happen here and then it did. You know, there, there was more than a couple of those moments where it was just like everything was set up for something special to happen. And down the stretch, he was consistently delivering on those opportunities for like really special moments and memories. Not just that they they came, they came when they seemed to like suppose like were supposed to happen. Essentially, like the, the stars would align for him, and he delivered repeatedly in those situations. And you just don't get that very often. Did that transport you back a little bit to growing up? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I remember watching Albert in spring training before he was used to go down to Florida every year. And I saw him the first time I saw Albert play. He hadn't played in the major major leagues yet. So to watch a guy's whole career like that, yeah, it definitely definitely took me back. Some of those, um, you know, we did a lot of those lists like you were talking about Albert's best moments. And obviously there's no shortage of huge moments on national stage that baseball fans will remember. But for me, you know, speaking of that same kind of sentiment of like 
you almost expect him to come up in a sport where seven out of ten gets you the Hall of failing seven out of ten times gets you the Hall of Fame. For me, some of those moments that I was like, hey, we should get these on the air, make sure these are included, or some of those those Cubs games from back in the day, like that game where in I think it was oh four oh five where he went five for five with three homers. Mm-hmm. Like you had to be kind of following the team to remember that in the long list of great moments of Pool's career. But that's like what. Albert Pools was at his peak to me is that type of game where it's just you don't see that in baseball. It's almost like a basketball-esque performance where like we've got the best player and he's probably going to score 40 tonight and there's really not much you could do to stop it. Boy, like That's yeah. kind of what Pools was at his peak and he he flirted with it a little bit in his kind of swan song. Yeah, that's fascinating. You're right. It is. There were times where we would go to the ballpark and be like, okay, it's buddy walk day. Well, get get to writing on, on Albert Pools and three home runs or the winner. Get prepared for it. You're right. It is kind of like Jordan going into the garden. Yeah. You know, that that doesn't happen. And I mean, I guess maybe Scherzer or like a Verlander or like a pitching right, guy. For like, a like for But for a position player, you don't really do that. You know, I can't think of too many other position players in the game currently where maybe Bryce Harper vaulted to that level during October. Is that fair? I agree with that for sure. Bryce definitely felt that had that same vibe going on for him in the postseason, especially in the series in San Diego. I mean, the way that the way that that ended with his big moment, it did it did feel like kind of one of those moments where it's like, oh, no, we've we've backed ourselves into a corner here and. Bryce Harper's so we have to get around to get out of it, and it's probably not going to work out for you with the way he was swinging it. What do you mean? Oh, so it, before I ask you the last question, I, I just think of this. I mean, this whole year started with a lockout and a late start to spring training, a delayed start to the regular season, friction galore, but then an agreement, and then unfolds with one of the more remarkable series of events, whether it's 62 home runs for a guy in pinstripes or 700 for a guy who uh, who shows you can go home again. I mean, just like this, this season had just such a huge remarkable, activity, dramatic activity at the trade deadline. Huge like, activity. Soto, like maybe the best player. I know he didn't have a great year, but to me, Juan Soto, of all the great players we've seen come up, if you had to say, okay, which one guy did you know the quickest that he you're looking at a Hall of Famer? To me, that's Juan Soto. It's like almost instantaneous. Like, well, this guy's yeah. – you look at the history of guys that come up and perform the way he did, there's really no flukes. You, you find guys that come up and hit for huge power, pitchers that come up and dominate, but you don't find guys that get on base like that at that age that – I mean, the list is just full of inner circle Hall of Famers. There's no, there's no flukes that do what Juan Soto did. To have a guy like that involved in the trade deadline, to have a guy like Bryce Harper be in the center of everything in Philadelphia, to have all the storylines with the Astros and Dusty and kind of getting back after what they went through. I mean, it was, it was a pretty special season on a lot of fronts, and I'm with you. I mean, that feels like what we went through these last couple off seasons, that feels like years ago after yeah. all that turmoil and all the hand wringing and all the ink that was spilled and the hours that were spent on all the networks talking about all that stuff. The season itself made it easy to forget about all that turmoil. I find it remarkable that the game can do that. Yeah. You know, like the, the people can write the obituaries for baseball over and over and over again, but a game that can do that, that can come back from where it was. And let's not ignore, too, that baseball led professional sports back from 
the quarantine from pandemic. I mean, you know, the NBA did a great thing with the bubble and everything like that, but it was baseball that was at the forefront of how are we going to play our season? How are we going to get this done? And travel teams, which they did. um, So they deserve some credit for that. But to slingshot out of labor strife into a season like that, uh, not many things, let alone sports, could do that. So how does baseball build on that momentum? Yeah, that's a good question about how they build on that momentum. My first thought when you were running through that was just back to what we talked about earlier. I think the day-to-day nature of it, when things get going good, there's so much momentum when there's always another game the next day that it's easy to kind of put some of that stuff in the rearview mirror and just look ahead. But as far as building on that momentum, I mean, I think what we've seen so far this offseason is a good step in that direction. I mean, do I feel bad that the Red Sox fans going to not be able to wear their Xander Bogarts jerseys to the stadium anymore? Yeah, I, I do. Is there things, teams that aren't having maybe the offseason that they'd like to, or maybe the outlook's a little more bleak for the immediate future? Sure, but I think that having all this movement, whether it's stars changing teams, whether it's the drama around Aaron Judge, will he stay or won't he stay? Okay, he stayed for a huge contract. Like It's been a pretty headline-heavy offseason in terms of legit, not just these are the best guys on the market right now, but like these are legit guys like these are dudes that not just good players but there's interesting things about them like you know we talk about a Bogart's like okay a two-time World Series winning player who's played more games at shortstop than anybody in the history of one of the kind of blue blood franchises going to a team that nobody would have ever expected nobody would have drawn up the Padres I mean that's it's exciting stuff to have that kind of shake up and that kind of shuffle with some of the top end players in the game so I think that's a good first step, how the next season plays out. Who knows? But there's going to be a lot of exciting new places and new new faces and new places. Cardinals, who you know well, watch well. Last thing I want to ask you here, this past year they had 700. They had Albert Pujols' return. They had Yadier Molina's victory lap. They get to the postseason. They win the division. They have Nolan Arenado not opt out, which is not – I mean, that's one of the top five headlines of any for the Cardinals, regardless of what happened on the field. Um, what do they do for an encore? What what does this? What do they need to do in twenty twenty three to not just build on the momentum, but like to to remain? It's really the first time in a long time, or in a few years, where they captured the imagination again. I think is the best way to describe it. So, how do they keep that? What do they do for an encore? I think one of the most interesting things for this season is this: some of these young players, like the Lars Newbars of the world, the Donovans of the world. Can they establish themselves as everyday dependable pieces? Because I think to me, you know, we saw the page turn with some of the some of the Hall of Famers that passed away in recent years. That old guard, a Cardinal player that that we've lost. Those roles are now going to be backfilled by you know the Aussies and as the generations go. But now we have Albert and Yadi and soon Wainwright that are going to be in that mix. And the next generation of that type player is on the yeah, roster yeah, with yeah. Goldschmidt and Arenado. So who's the next? Not the you know, not saying Lars Newbar is going to turn into Nolan Arnado, but who's that next wave? Because now all of a sudden Arnado and Goldschmidt, obviously they're still got plenty in the tank. They were two first and second of the MVP this year, but who's that next wave of player kind of coming behind them? And I think just in terms of the results for 2023, you know, talk about Newbar, that's one of the most intriguing guys on the whole roster to me. I mean, because for six weeks last year he looked like Christian Yelich, basically like yeah. peak Christian Yelich. Can he be? He's not going to be that. Can he be Miami Christian Yelich? Can he be a guy that hits in the middle of your order? Can he be a guy who hits in the top of your order consistently? Can he be like an 800 OPS type of guy? I think that would solve a lot of problems for the Cardinals. And then there's Jordan Walker. 
who just as Albert Pujols leaves the stage, here comes the guy who won't be on the roster for spring training, but will have every opportunity to make the leap right out of the minors straight into the lineup. Yeah, and I can't wait to see him. I got a quick peek at him at the Futures game, and yeah. a lot of my colleagues have been you know out at the AFL the last couple of years and seen Jordan Walker and seen Mason Wynn and. It's as advertised by by all by all accounts. I mean, not a scout, but all the scouty type things that people say about those guys, a layman can come up with those same assessments because it looks different when we were out there at the Futures game this year watching those guys take BP. So I'm certainly excited to see that. This has been great. Thank you very much for coming to my neighborhood here, for hanging out. It looks Thanks like the hospitality. Yeah, it looks like you, we need to get a refill on the coffee <laughs> before heading out in the wind. But Keith, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming by. And I know we've talked about doing this for years, so it's great to kind of finally do it. Yeah, we're sitting here in person, so no phone call, but definitely a, a first time long time situation i was on board from uh, back in the day with bernie so yeah. it's good to finally uh finally be involved closing the 10th year of this thing crazy huh of the podcast yeah did we call them podcast 10 years ago i guess I so know. you're an early adopter you're an you're an innovator the money ball of the media game so to speak <laughs> right. out ahead of the market efficiency we saw that's right we saw we saw an untapped niche there in bernie Miklas's attic and started exactly. where all great ideas are born that's right thank you very much thanks Derek. A special thanks to Keith Costas, senior researcher at MLB Network, for coming to my neighborhood and recording this podcast. He's one of the guys I've really enjoyed getting to know by being around baseball, being around St. Louis baseball. And as you can probably tell, he's is one of my favorite guys to talk baseball with. You can see him almost every weekday there on MLB Network on the hot stove. He also does a lot of work, so much work, behind the scenes, especially during the season with game production and game broadcasts. Just, you can find the best podcast in baseball anywhere you get your podcasts. It's available on iTunes where you can rate and review the podcast. You can also subscribe to the podcast. Subscriptions make the sponsorships possible, and sponsorships continue to make this podcast podcast possible as we try to maintain that weekly schedule well, that that goes for the end of the year this is the 10th year coming to a close of the best podcast in baseball and already we're putting together plans for spring training the best podcast in baseball is brought to you by closet by design of st louis and it's a production of the st louis post dispatch stltoday.com where you can find all of our constant cardinals coverage have a happy holidays stay safe stay healthy stay informed look forward to talking to you again